2: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of this conversation, and I'm pleased to be speaking with Jennifer Domino-Rudolph, author of Baseball as Mediated Latinidad, Race, Masculinity, Nationalism, and Performances of Identity, published by Ohio State University Press in 2020 as part of the Global Latin and Latino Americas Series. Edited by Frederick Lewis Aldama and Lourdes Torres. Jennifer Domino-Rudolph is associate professor of Hispanic Studies at Connecticut College. She teaches classes in Latinx studies on topics related to Latinx popular culture, media, and Spanish for heritage speakers. Her current research focuses on representations and receptions of Latino and Latinx masculinities in media and popular culture. Hello, Jennifer, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies.
1: Hi, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here and share my work.
2: Great, thank you. I'm super excited to have you on because I'm particularly going through withdrawals and that baseball season has not started. I think um, we all are. Right, as, uh, but I'm vain- anxiously awaiting games towards the end of this month. Uh, So I was hoping if we can just start, maybe you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, and maybe if you could just toss in at some point who your favorite baseball team and player is.
1: Oh, well, actually, I am from Chicago, so that's always a a tough question because Uh my mother's family, actually, when they arrived from Italy to Chicago, they settled very close to where the Chicago White Sox play on the south side, and so... White Sox games were always on in the background when I was growing up. And my mother was a very big fan. In fact, my grandmother would tell these stories about how they would actually put a chair out in front of their house to to guard their parking space on game days so that fans didn't park and, and take their space. And so that's just always been there in my life. And then growing up, ironically, my best friend's family took me to many, many Cubs games. So I've actually been to Wrigley Field more times than I have been to Sox Park. I refuse to call it guaranteed rate field, just not into that. Um, but, um, and actually people from the neighborhood call it Sox park as kind of what it, how it's known. And so that's where really my interest in this topic began because baseball was always around in my life. And people say this is going to sound like a cop-out, but I, I do have a different, I have a love for the White Sox and the Cubs in different ways. Like there's, aspects of both teams that I like and picking one of them is hard. And when, whenever they play each other, it's always tough. Cause like, I'm kind of rooting for both. And then all my friends are like, you have to pick, you can't, you can't, you can't stay neutral, but um, I do love and root for both teams. And um, I'm suffering in the East coast. Cause I know disrespect, but I'm not a Yankees person. I'm not a Red Sox person. Cause in Connecticut, people are either typically Yankees or Red Sox and no disrespect, but no, I'm not, I, I just follow Chicago as best I can from afar. So, yeah.
2: That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. I won't take it as a cop out. I can understand, you know, uh dual loyalties uh, and uh, stuff like that, so I appreciate that. And and how about um a little bit more about yourself, uh, maybe how you came into uh, academia, et etc.
1: Yeah, I um basically my academic journey was just that professors in college just kept encouraging me to go on. They just kept saying like I didn't really know my family's sort of very working class. So I didn't really know what a PhD was or grad school or things like that, or like, let alone having a research career and teaching in higher ed. And so professors just along the way, especially my advisor from undergrad, Olga Vileña Jainero, who is Puerto Rican, encouraged me. She was like, no, I think this is something that you could really do and you really should do. So she kind of mentored me, encouraged me to go on to graduate school. And, and, now, and now here I am, however many years later, more than I'd like to think about.
2: I love hearing uh, stories like that because I I just get the impression that so many of my students who I've spoken with in the past um, just kind of think like all of us professors are cut out of the same mold, you know, like we come from uh, academic families or pedigrees and stuff like that. And uh, for so many of my colleagues and and myself, it just, it wasn't like that. There's nothing wrong having that happen, right? It's just only kind of natural. I mean, like my parents were educators in, in the primary education level, and so I always kind of anticipated maybe going to education, but as you mentioned, yeah, it wasn't, for me, this was never a thought until, um, you know, professors and mentors actually put it into my mind that it's something you could actually do, right?
1: Yeah, I was going to be a high school Spanish teacher for a very long time, and then my advisor's like, you could do that, but you could do this.
2: Right. <laughs> well, I'm sure you would have been a phenomenal high school Spanish teacher as well, and uh, uh, so that's great. Um, well, to, to get Talking a little bit about the book, I was hoping if uh, you could wouldn't mind just explaining the title for us a little bit. What does that actually mean, in particular, the first part of it, Baseball as Mediated Latinidad?
1: Yes, and I I know that's a bit of a long... One of the things about academic books is titles can tend to be long, but um, this idea of baseball as mediated Latinidad, I kind of had two goals for the idea of, of mediated here, meaning both Baseball is a way I think that people use to mediate how they understand Latinos and their place in U.S. society, and by and I mean not only Latinos themselves but also non-Latinos. Because given baseball demographics, which we can get more into in a few minutes, this is a critical mass of Latinos that people see playing baseball, and so this is a way, a space for people to make meaning of of this population and to kind of you know make sense of where they place in the United States, and also issues around nationality citizenship and race and all of these things come into play and particularly because baseball is entirely men masculinity and so i so baseball as i said becomes a place for for people to the the mechanism by which maybe we could say people mediate this their understanding of latinidad and then for fans like follow or for latino fans excuse me following players can become tied with things like nationality. For example, certain teams in the Dominican Republic have like certain following specifically in the United States, like fans of a certain Dominican team will tend to be fans of certain U.S. teams because of the connections there or because specific players. I mean, obviously the Red Sox very much benefited from Papi Ortiz and um, Manny Ramirez and Pedro Martinez, who we referred to as the Holy Trinity at one point, <laughs> La Santa in the Dominican community. And so, you know, you saw us, a huge spike in fans of the Boston Red Sox during that time. Sammy Sosa brought a lot of Dominicans and Latinos to the Cubs. You know, we could, we could go on with many examples, and I think more and more, because as I said, if anything, the number of Latino American players is only increasing. And I just want to say quickly, when I say Latino Amer- American, I do the Latino American because I want to include both Latinos that were born in the U.S., which is actually less of the MLB player population, because most of them were born in Latin America and either came to the US in childhood or were recruited directly through the Dominican, particularly academia system where a lot of a lot of recruitment happens. And so just to make sure that both of those groups are kind of accounted for, because we don't necessarily separate them when we think about baseball players. And sometimes you don't even know who was born in the US, who was born abroad. We don't know what people's specific biographies are. And so that was the idea of this of, you know, of, of the mediated use in one sense, but then also I wanted to point to the media specifically because the media is obviously where most people consume baseball and also consume information about players. Like this is where people learn about you know what players do in their off times. Either they follow them on social media or through you know or through coverage in newspapers, magazines, and and on team websites and such. So this idea of mediated can have both the media but also like this mechanism to understand kind of um, the meaning. And, and in terms of the the long bottom part of the title, the race, masculinity, nationalism, and performances of identity, that those are sort of like the main things I wanted to look at. And I, the main aspects of Latino identity that I think baseball really brings to the table and can help us understand more widely as, you know, as a country and just as both as fans, but also media workers who, who do this and, and who present this information as well who have a responsibility that they don't always sort of they kind of shirk i think sometimes in the way that they represent players and and sort of just kind of the messages that they send to fans through some of the media coverage so that was where that came from
2: well, thank you for uh, breaking that down a bit and um even for me listening to it again after reading the book it helps me to see the way, you know, that the title is 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 working with this phrasing in several ways. The first is uh, that, that came clearly to me initially was uh, that baseball is like a medium, right? It, it's like a frame that helps make Latinos intelligible in some way, right, for better or worse, right, uh, to a public, a certain segment of the public that isn't really familiar with who Latinos are outside of what they see on the screen, right? And so, as America's pastime, right? This game, which has a, a, a large white audience. I don't know, you probably know the numbers a lot more than I do. uh, um, But particularly in regards to demographics, it's, it's, it's one of the sports that still has a very large white male audience, right? And so we can presume that there's a lot of that large white male audience that, that doesn't really come into contact with Latinos all that much. And maybe baseball is, is one of the primary means to which that happens. So as you're saying, the way that they're represented through the media, on the screen, the way they're described in the broadcast, etc., cetera, the way they act, all that is somehow making legible, making it comprehensible to viewers who and what Latinos are, right? And then the other way that I really like that you pointed out too is that, but this doesn't just work one way. Right, those unfamiliar with Latinos, but for a Latino audience themselves, whether they're U.S. born Latinos or Latin American right? immigrants, right, there is a by by viewing these players on you know TV, it it can build a sense of latinidad, right? It can build a sense of community or idea of who Latinos are as this big pan-ethnic community, right? That's made up of, you know, Afro-Latinos and, you know, other, you know, uh, Latinos from you know, various parts, right, of the Americas, um, whether they're Mexican, Caribbean, uh, Venezuelan, whatever it may be, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so in that sense, for Latinos themselves, this can build a sense of, hey, like, we are something, right? Like as a bigger group beyond our national affinity. absolutely, Right. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and then your, your aspect in the media, which I think is is really important. So thank you for breaking that down. Um uh, and I just really enjoy how that works. And then again with the race masculinity nationalism, these are kind of all things that are how these things are all constructed, right, through that sense of latinidad. So what is race, right? So how does you know, this notion of latinidad, what does it mean to be Latino, how does that can affect our conceptions of race, right? When you see a Spanish speaking ball player that looks black, mm-hmm. right? Um, that may be a big shock to people. Or when you see someone, conversely, that has the last name Gonzalez <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? and speaks perfect English, you know, and mm-hmm. seems very middle class or whatever, right? This can uh, all these things have an effect on uh, how we understand these things like race, what it means to be, you know, a Latino male uh, in, in terms of masculinity or how nationalism intersects with this broad pan-ethnic transnational concept, right? Absolutely. All right. Good. Okay. So thanks for that. Um, I wanted to delve a bit more into this now uh, as we particularly look at, I want to bring up back up the concept of, you know, baseball, as America's pastime, right, that has this large, um, you know, white male and and broadly white audience. And it is much more diverse than that, but that may be the largest segment of it. Um, and so what does it mean, right, to have a substantial chunk, right, of almost, well, it's a little more than a quarter of the, the uh, professional ball players? I think it's something like 27%, I think, yes, the book it pulls out, <laughs> right, that are... Latino, particularly from the Caribbean Mm -hmm. uh, and Venezuela, right? A lot of them looking clearly as Americans would read them as Black, right? Uh, So, like, what does this do for conceptions about, you know, the U.S. US race race relations and that that kind of history and, like, U.S. nationalism as, right, fans are are literally consuming, right, uh, entertainment and a product that is a tied to America so closely in building American nationalism as, you know, a white Protestant thing and uh, particularly like English monolingual thing. But then you have these figures on the field who you're celebrating and cheering that that don't fit that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I will start with actually a, a personal anecdote that I actually opened my first chapter, uh, which is on Sammy Sosa with this. When he played, an, and I, because I think but this sort of everyday example is gets to exactly what you're saying, and and it's a great window into what fans are th- are thinking when they're consuming a game. I, I was watching a, a Cubs game with my sister in the early 2000s when Sammy was still playing, and you know I, I'll say my sister's kind of average American-ish. I would say whatever that means, but by that I mean she doesn't have much knowledge about Latinos and race like I do. In fact, she looks to me for when she has questions about that, and so. During this very game, she looked at me and said, "So is Sammy Sosa Hispanic or Black?" And I said, "Well, if you asked him, he would tell you he's Dominican." And she looked at me like that wasn't one of the options that I presented to you in my question. And I said, "Dominicans don't identify that way. That's a a U.S. racial construct. You know, this idea of Black or Hispanic." Which then I didn't get into the weeds of the fact that Hispanic would actually be considered an ethnic identity. And as opposed to a race identity, because people who are identified as Latino or Hispanic can be both anything from light to to can be from white to 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 black, and and complexions vary and such. But I, this idea, I think, of just of identifying nationally but not racially, I think is something that a lot of of people in the United States struggle with. And so I then asked him. A Very good friend of mine who's from the Dominican Republic. And I, I said, you know, that's how I answered the question. I told my sister that Sammy would identify as Dominican. Would you agree as someone who grew up there? And she said, Absolutely. She's like, and I'll tell you, he would probably not identify as negro. And we were talking about like the racial categories that, that, that exist in the Dominican Republic. And and that he she said that probably he would be not likely to publicly identify as negro, that he might say something like, in the old which Dominican culture uses to emphasize the indigenous heritage and downplay the African heritage of Dominicans due to sort of the racial history and the relationship with Haiti that that country has. And so, you know, my sister, of course, had no idea of the can of worms that she was opening and asking that question. But I think that speaks to the degree to which many Americans who are not familiar with Latino culture like you said, when they, they look at the, the bodies playing baseball that they see and they and they certainly would not understand them from a racial perspective in the same way that a Latino fan would or someone in Latin America for that matter. So if we could stay with Sammy Sosa for a minute, I think he's important and this is why I dedicated an entire chapter to his um his story. I don't know if if people listening to this will remember, in, in on November fifth, two thousand nine, Sammy Sosa showed up at the the Latin Grammys with very lightened skin. Like it was visibly much, much lighter and, than his skin had ever been. And of course, people were wondering what in the heck was going on and all of these like memes with pictures of him from early in his career to then comparing his skin tone and all of the speculation around what that what that meant and why that was started to happen. And so, so his publicists and sort of his promotional camp, their official explanation was that he was using a facial cream to to soften his skin and to also even out his complexion because he suffers from vitiligo was sort of what people that was like the official sami sosa narrative of what was going on there but this also and whether that's true or not although most dermatologists and actually a few dermatologists did were quoted in press articles saying that that would unlikely be the case that that really did not sound like it, it, an actual explanation for that but the actual explanation aside because I think what's really more important is what happened around Sammy so, so receptions of him and what fans and popular culture creators did with that because this opens up a huge you know further conversation about how race is understood among Latinos and Latino Americano so this, there was a whole debate about you know about blackness and, and where does that fit in Dominican ancestry. And so you saw everything from fans talking, sh- basically shaming Sammy Sosa and saying, listen, you're black and you need to own that. And you're doing a total disservice to Dominicans by by lightening yourself, and by trying to distance yourself from blackness. And then the, the, on the other end of the scale were unfortunately some horribly, um, just horribly self, just, just shaming Posts on social media about how black just 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 defaming blackness and saying that that Sammy Sosa was doing the right thing, you know, distancing himself from blackness, that blackness is something that people should avoid at all costs. So you had like those two polls, but then you had people posted things that were sort of between that. Like one particular blogger referred to what Sammy Sosa was doing in terms of um distancing himself from blackness as, and I'm quoting here the mulatto escape hatch. And I want to say that we need to be careful because the term mulatto is very racialized, very negatively racialized in the United States in a way that it isn't necessarily all over Latin America. But but I bring this up because what this what this person argued in coining and using that term was that you know what what a lot of Dominicans like Sammy Sosa might be tempted to do and Latin Americans in general because of the history. Of the fraught history around African heritage in Latin America, is, in, is instead of identifying as black, they'll identify as mixed race, as a combination of whiteness and blackness, so as to not, so as to to downplay the African heritage. And this goes back to thinkers like Jose Vasconcelos with La Raza Cosmica in Mexico and others, who you know talked about this idea that that Latin Americans and in, in the case of Vasconcelos specifically Mexicans had indigenous blood as well as Spanish blood and black blood, but these things were all not necessarily living together in a harmonious way. And I think that in terms of coming to a reckoning with race, and I would say this is, if not, I would say it may be even more true in the United States, Seeing especially seeing what we're seeing right now in terms of um, the uprisings and protests around police brutality. But what this basically is showing us is that neither Latin America nor the United States has really reckoned with its racial identity. And so um, this was an opportunity for us to see kind of in, in real time with uh, the example of a real person, how, um, how people were, were understanding this and negotiating it and, and sort of identifying it racially. And the other, the last thing I'll say about this, and if people have not checked this out, and if you speak Spanish, I highly recommend you Googling this. There's a Crema de San by de La Olla, and it is a hysterical. I mean, aspects of it are obviously very sad because it, it basically is him saying, you know, like being black is it, all of the quote unquote problems or issues with being black. And so, but it's also done in an incredibly humorous way. And of course, there's a, um, a gesturing to Michael Jackson in the song because we know that Michael Jackson has historically, historically sort of did the same thing. And so, the other thing that I, would highly recommend is a skit that came out in the show, read, where Cremon also was a Dominican comedian, um, dresses, he and his partner, they dress as Sammy Sosa and his wife. And so it's, a, and they're supposed to be interviewed on a Miami news station. And what's really interesting about that sort of stage kind of interview is that basically the gist of the narrative is that he becomes addicted to this crema because he he wants everything to be white and he wants everything to be light but the problem is that now that he's no longer playing baseball, he doesn't have enough money to keep to keep sort of buying these cremas that he needs. And so he and his wife are trying to figure out how that's going to work, or if maybe he should just use her face products. So there's some interesting gender things, especially, too, you can let your imagination go with you around the idea of crema and how crema is, is used to, to signify different substances from facial creams to bodily fluids. And I'll leave it at that. But... Um, but but, all, but but even within this conversation about this need for whitening and how you know having having money and having capital makes you whiter, there's definitely a consideration that he should remain black. In, in the words of his wife, "Where it counts," which is sort of like his 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 male parts. And so, this idea, even like wealth, is so strongly equated with whiteness. But virility and masculinity and strength, with, throughout the interview, is equated with blackness. And so, I think. That is a great example of how just the nuanced, it, just how nuanced the conversations we have around race are and how that intersects with things like gender and things like social class. So, so yeah, that was, and that's why I started with the chapter on Sammy Sosa. And he has been recently in 2018, he was in Where Are They Now, at this or, um, issue of ESPN Magazine. He's on the cover and he says that he's, and he's still with a very lightened complexion. He now lives in Dubai and he says he will no longer talk about the lightening of his skin, that he is happy and he's, he's not anti-Black, but he's happy with himself as he is right now and, and that everybody should just leave him alone. And that, you know, he's in the end, he's the one that, that wins because he's living this wealthy lifestyle in Dubai. And so, you know, basically it's basically kind of a leave me alone and we're not going to talk about this anymore.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: Right. Yeah, and I I really enjoyed it too. I enjoyed how you um started with the personal anecdote, right, and that that story um, because it it is something that um I don't know, I think some of our um, listeners and I think just p- people can relate to whether those are questions we have ourselves when we come into contact with someone that we can't quite read uh you know legibly like racially or culturally or something like that. It, it's something that people can relate to, right? And, and particularly baseball provides this. This, uh, these type of interactions and conversations, you know, almost on a nightly basis during, you know, baseball season, right? Um, when uh, a new kid comes up, a new ball player, Pelotero comes out of the, the, the farm league system, you know, and, you know, he, maybe he looks black, but then he's got that Guzman last name or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. Automatically, it starts to trigger these type of debates and conversations. And I think you're right. Sammy Sosa prevents a a, a very good figure, one that a lot of people can relate to again. He was, you know, in the home run chase, you know, back in the early 2000s. Right. And, and uh, you, you do talk about that. And I always kind of caught that this was before my academic years, but I, I could kind of see the kind of under racial undertones that are going beyond that like who was cheering for Maguire right to break the record and who wanted Sosa to break the record you know and it wasn't just Absolutely. a black white frame right it's not like there's just it was Maguire's the white guy and Sosa's the black guy but Sosa was foreign you know and so mm-hmm. so it's to some people right he's not even american right to uh and I, that was I just caught a bit of that you know even as a younger adult um, that wasn't so at that point really into studying racial analysis. Um, and I tried to remember, I, I tried to think back in my own mind, like who was I wrote, rooting for um, <laughs> at that time? And, uh, you know, I, I remember I really liked Sammy. I just liked his his kind mm-hmm. of, I think it maybe came down to like more of a batting stance and style, right? And we can get into this later on, this, the style at which he played. Um, you know, McGuire is always much more stoic, you know? And I, I remember McGuire from his early years, too, when both of them were much smaller, right? (laughs) Right,
1: absolutely. And that was another thing, like, several pictures of Sammy have surfaced over time. Like, look at how small he was then and how, like, just corporeally larger he is for the end of his career. And
2: And the same thing with Maguire, right? I mean, Maguire becomes, like, barrel-chested, you know, like, humongous in his... Right at the end of his towards a lot of parts of his career when he was a stick figure at the beginning. So <laughs> it, it is. We can get into steroids and all that later. I think that's that's a fascinating part of it too. um But but yeah, definitely. You know this, and I think what really comes out right is this idea of you know baseball. It may be America's pastime, right? Uh, America, as in U.S. America, mm-hmm. but it belongs to the Americas, right? Definitely. And. It is a transnational sport and it has been one for, you yeah. know, since its beginning, as you point out and other authors point out and, you know, baseball and, and its audience and the media, right, are, are, are still coming to terms with this, right? Absolutely. And discussions about race and masculinity around figures like Sosa is just one way
1: mm-hmm. where we
2: can see that conc- very clearly and very tangibly.
1: Right. right. And if I could just jump in here for a second in terms of MLB yeah, yeah. in the fan base situation, I mean, for a long time, the joke was that MLB fans are basically aging out because the, the biggest, as you said, the biggest sort of fan cluster group is middle to upper middle aged to older white men. And so, mm-hmm. you know, like the elder ones, obviously passing away. And what MLB, I think, and you can see this, I think, in some of the initiatives like the Ponle Asiento case that I talk about in the book that we could talk about in a minute if you'd like. I think like what they show us is that I think MLB is starting to realize this there. And I and there was actually one of the articles that I quoted in the book that was on. I, it was on. I, I can. I'm, it's escaping you right now, which um which Latino Facebook page it was on. But it was definitely out of the Latino press that was saying, you know what? Latinos are going to if baseball is going to survive, Latinos are going to make it survive, like they're going to make it happen. And so that will also which I think is true. And I think MLB, like I said, is starting to come to that realization as well. But I think that um, if in order for that to be the case and going back to what you said about the sort of white Anglo Protestant culture of of masculinity around MLB, that's going to have to change because. I'm sure you've seen it and you kind of gestured to it. When you talked about Sammy's batting stance, this idea, there's often criticism that Latino players are too flashy, like either in their batting stances or like when, like when they're home, they're doing their home run trots. Like there's, it's that they're showing, there's all these conversations about showing up the pitcher and, you know, like expressing too much emotion on the field. But then, you know, several Latino players have come out and said, but that's how we play the game. And other than that, it's boring. Like, why would we not, you know, why would we not do that? And so I think, but, but these also then I think are tensions that depending on your positionality as, an, as a fan of Major League Baseball, you read through that lens. Like for maybe for a lot of like old school white guys, like my father probably would say, that's flashy. You know, a gentleman just drops the bat, runs the four bases and and and, and takes care of it and that's it. Whereas, whereas younger people who come from different backgrounds might say, no, you know, I, I, think we, I think players should be allowed to show some of their personality on the field. And I remember growing up during Sammy, because I was like you, a lot of the Sammy Sosa years, I was not an academic yet. So like, and that was interesting in writing that chapter because I was thinking back about, you know, growing up with him around in Chicago because he was in the media so much. And one of the things that he was criticized for a lot was like sort of the kissing up to his, to the sky. And that was, you know, that he said was something that he was doing for his mother and just that he was considered by the Chicago media as being very, very much a show off or being arrogant in, in sort of the way that he carried his body. And I think that that was read as something that was, that was definitely attached to some of the stereotypes of Latino masculinities that we could name, like being too passionate Mm -hmm. or being irrational. And so, yeah.
2: Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, a guy that just brings up so many memories, my dad and I, and and just other people I know, we've had so many conversations about this, like when I was just growing up, or at least just the comments of, yes, the the type of performative aspect and style, right? Mm -hmm. Everything from a bat flip to a trot to a batting stance to yeah you know the the kissing and the, the peace sign to the the sky that you know mm-hmm. i just loved it when Sammy would do that i mean i wasn't even a cubs fan growing up but uh, <laughs> i forgot to mention i'm a dodger fan um but um i'm actually wearing even my hat history, I, I can
1: definitely prove you being a dodger fan <laughs> fernando media all the way <laughs> that's
2: right in fact i got a fernando on a twitter jersey behind me But, uh, but yeah, definitely so many of these, it's so funny. And what I think is that the thoughts coming to my mind is that I don't think there's, there's like, we don't realize the racial undertones. At least I didn't right? as a teenager, as a a kid, or even, you know, till I started like reading and reading, you know, academic works on this subject, you know, all those things about what's the appropriate way to act right? Mm -hmm. As an athlete, we hear this in in football too, right? Uh, You know, whether someone overly celebrates in, you know, an end zone, that has become something that was you know, attributed to African American players. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when Ken Griffey Jr., right, in with his batting stance and the kind of little waving of the bat, or when he turned his yes. baseball cap backwards, right, in the home run contest, it yes. got like so much media attention because that was like something new, right? And what they're saying mm-hmm. is like this was urban and black, is how it was being read. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is not white, right? This is not you know, right, gentlemanly like conduct, right? Exactly and uh, and yeah it's just it's full of racial undertones and i think you're right in regards to you know mlb <clears throat> you know they've there's been a lot of commentary right they've they have an, an aging again demographic with white males they they've kind of missed the boat or dropped the ball it's not missed the boat they dropped the ball right mm-hmm. on kind of like their urban initiatives or you know trying to Absolutely. recruit and do something about you know uh you know uh African Americans and and how to retain them and bring them into the the game and all that so you know whereas MLB and uh, no, I'm sorry NBA and football has kind of made that turn i mean you just see this right now with godell like all of a sudden they're embracing yes. black lives matter i'm like uh, what? And, and
1: yet <laughs> what? still and yet still problematic about Colin Kaepernick so yeah <laughs> okay godell i don't know <laughs>
2: but baseball has this you know this stronger reluctance right mm-hmm. to to go that route they they haven't gone there yet right and um uh i think in in even ways of uh, i see just parallels with politics like the way politicians yes. take advantage of latinos right it's kind of like the way mm-hmm. i get that that's how mlb is is working with latinos right now they're kind of thinking like where else are they going to go we got mm-hmm. them anyways we need to expand our market share into these other areas mm-hmm. right rather than saying oh, here's a key demographic and a key way that we can really, you know, expand our, our market share. And, you know, they're just, there's that hesitancy to do that. Mm-hmm. And as you point out in the, the book, so much of that is tied to, you know, the identity of baseball as a a white, right, again, Protestant American thing. Like American being identified as white, white anglo Saxon Protestant. Yes. There's this reluctance to move away from that, right?
1: Definitely. And and, think, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and I, cause I think this is where the Ponle Acento example yes, might um, be great, because...
2: That's exactly where I was going to go, with language and Spanish. Yes, the next
1: because next right And if you look, as I, of course I watched, so to, for, for the background of our listeners, um, this was a campaign that MLB did in 2016 with the Houston-based Latino ad agency called Latin Works, and it, for Hispanic Heritage Month, the idea was that they would encourage, that MLB would encourage players to add the accent marks to the last names on their uniform as sort of a show of pride during Hispanic Heritage Month and reconnection with their identity. But when you, if you Google, cause the, and I had never seen the ad campaign on TV, but I, I saw, I I watched it on Google. There's a sort of a commercial slash pitch for the ad. And what's, and I think this is to your point about the way that MLB is trying to, to Deal with race in a way that I think they may think is a little bit less, um, a little bit less polemic than than engaging in something like blackness, because what they do is it's very much through a narrative of immigration, but like a very but like a very deserving immigration, not like an undocumented immigration, because of course they would not want to. Although that's an issue in MLB in terms of recruitment with Cuban players, but that's a separate issue. But the, the, you know, but so at the beginning of this ad, like you, it opens up and there's a passport, and the last name on the passport is Calderon, which has an accent on the O in Spanish typically, but it's not there. And so, the voiceover, which has an accent that would be associated with Spanish being the person's first language, you know, he talks about how the I, the identities have been stripped of from, from many people's last names as they came to the United States and got a U.S. passport because the accent mark is missing from their names, and then you see like. All of these players' uniforms, of like the accent coming on top, like Ramírez on the eye or like Rodríguez on on the eye or you know any any number of ones we can we could say as examples. But you know this this idea of recovering this sort of lost heritage, and ironically too, then there it flips to a shot of of a sewing machine in a hand, like sewing the accent back onto on the top of the, the vowel in somebody's uniform. And I mean, for me, that's a really ironic image because. If we look at like garment workers in New York City for such a long time, particularly like Puerto Rican women, were very strongly recruited into that labor source. So I don't think that I'm not sure if they did that intentionally to sort of make a gesture to a different labor source other than baseball, where there was a lot of Latinx recruitment, at least in the early 20th century. But so. You know, you, you kind of see how they're definitely going through this, like, you know, the the quote unquote good immigrant who has come to the United States to make a better life. And we've robbed them of certain aspects of their identity by robbing them of the accent mark. And so then MLB for that month on the MLB logo, which is, you know, the batter and in, in kind of in his stance with the ball coming toward him, they put a, an accent mark on top of the bat. And so. The reason I think that this is problematic is because it's like totally superficial. I mean, this is very much one sort of superficial and exotifying narrative of immigration. I think, and so I think this is, and I think for MLB, this is like they thought they were really going very far in doing this. I think they were probably like, "Wow, you know, we we're really embracing Latinidad here," and I and I just don't think it brings us too much more than like I. I mean, I in maybe part of this is my training and background, but I have a feeling that most people would probably agree. I think it just reads as a very superficial attempt to shamelessly garner more Latino fans without putting in the work to do it and without maybe making them feel more comfortable, maybe making the, the ballparks more hospitable. Because even in recent years, there's been a lot of incidences around, particularly in Fenway Park, around players, Black, Players and, and, and Latino American players being called racial slurs, like as they're standing in the outfield in their positions, especially you know around like the Green Monster. And so, you know, I, I think when we see the reality of what's happening, and then you know this little commercial about immigrants and needing to recover the accent it sounds lovely, but it, I think it brings hollow.
2: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I, I I I can totally see that as well. And wasn't it it was Andrew Jones. Was that the most recent um, incidents? Uh, of of an African-American player being heckled with racial taunts at at, at, At Fenway Fenway Park?
1: I think so. I I, I have to double check because I do have that in the book somewhere, but I think that's right.
2: Yeah. But, yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, as much as I love seeing the accent on, you know, the interviews, I mean the interviews, the, the jerseys, I agree. And particularly as you were talking, I was thinking about like that label immigrant you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, to imposing the label of immigrant on people that may not have that, right? I mean, exactly. I've learned that like with my students, you know, mm-hmm. in talking to them, I have students from Latin America and one, you know, in a class discussion last year, just shared how kind of almost offensive and like shocked she was that people called her an immigrant because mm-hmm. she didn't identify that. She's like, hey, I'm here to go to school. Like, you know, right. and, and particularly from, you know, Ecuador. And right. you know, she's like, that's who I am. um And, you know, I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to stay here forever. And, and, right. and when people, you know, I think, you know, Americans and media, right, don't realize that, you know, that is imposing, again, a label that is very loaded and really Definitely. heavy and, and has a lot of personal decision-making process. I mean, it really caused her uh, to uh, reflect quite a bit, you know, about what was going on uh, you know um, uh, particularly at the time and, and and how she's like oh my gosh like you know am i am i secretly an immigrant like do i really want to stay here? you know what i mean it, it just created right. all this kind of almost trauma uh, and so and yeah and mlb so the, right that effort to tie into again a nationalistic Right type of idea, right? America as the place of immigrants. Yes. We're going to use that narrative trope, right, to <laughs> show how deserving, how meritocratic, right? Exactly. They are earning their citizenship by playing baseball. I mean, it is exactly. it, it is absurd, right?
1: <laughs> it really is. I mean, sometimes literally because the, and, and like when when certain players become U.S. citizens, there's a lot of press coverage around that. Like, I think Auxique Yen became a U.S. citizen after the White Sox won the World Series in 2005. I'm not. I, need, I would need to double check, but I'm pretty sure that was like the reason he finally did it. Because the other thing is, what's ironic about this is, because of the kinds of visas that MLB players get, they, I mean, obviously citizenship still has certain advantages. And, and according to the players themselves, they're more taxed, they're taxed more heavily if they're not citizens. But the fact of the matter is, these are elite, incredibly wealthy transnational men who not having... U.S. citizenship or not having, you know, and not having to worry about where they would be in their legal status process, like average an, an average immigrant would. Like, that's not even, like, that's not even on the table. But then, you know, you have these pictures of them. Like, there was a huge thing in all the Chicago media when when Ozzy became a citizen. It was like he's there with the flag and the whole thing. And Manny Ramirez, the same thing. He came out to left field right after he became a citizen holding a, a little American flag and waving it. And so it's definitely used in that sort of a of a way to, like you said, they've earned their citizenship, but also like, I think to, um, to just continue to, to evoke this idea of good immigrants or like, or to define who is a good immigrant. Like you're a good immigrant. If you can hit the ball out of the ballpark, like that's that's apparently the criteria, (laughs) or if you have like a hundred mile an hour fastball, like Pedro Martinez or somebody. So Yes, I mean, and, and, and but I also, just because of what you were saying, and I think it's so important, the other thing about this idea of using the trope of immigrants, and I think the media in the U.S. is horribly guilty of this, is I think many people who are of Latino heritage are, con- are just considered to be immigrants, even if they were born here. Because uh-huh. I hear right. that from students all the time, too. It's like, no, when people are like, where are you from? They're like, no, I was born in New York City. Like, no, I'm, I'm not like from a different country. I was born in, you know, Manhattan or whatever. So... So yeah, I mean and I think baseball does little to nothing to to dissuade that sort of perception. Yeah. And they don't no, want to. Like that's the right. key. They don't want to. Because I my theory is that I that, that they would rather a player like someone like David Ortiz, who clearly or, or Sammy Sosa for that matter, before, who clearly reads as having mostly African heritage and would be understood as black in the US, they don't they would rather that person be read as an immigrant, I think, than as a black man. Mm -hmm. Because of the fan base, I, this is, this is my not totally provable theory, but I think because of the fan base and that MLB has has catered to for years, it's better to be, I mean, I hate to say better because I don't think it's better, but I think in MLB land, it's considered more, it's considered safer for them, I think, in their, in their, like, ad campaigns and stuff. To be a good immigrant than to be a black man who could be perceived as some sort of a threat which we also see when because some several black american players most notably tory hunter have talked about how there are very few black american like u.s black but not latino players in mlb anymore and if you look at the data from the 70s to now the numbers have flipped there were a fair amount of of u.s born black non-latino men in the 70s now and, and not that many from Latin America. Now it's the reverse. I mean, I it's definitely under twenty percent. I think at this point it's under fifteen percent of MLB is U.S. Black non-Latino men. So, and, and when when they when Black players make these these critiques, like that, basically MLB is importing its diversity. I, MLB you know circles the wagons like that's not it at all, and you know comes up with these cockamamie narratives to to answer that.
2: Right, which I mean, that's a great point too to, to talk about the issue of labor right in the MLB, and as it's been pointed out, you know, through its its lack of diversity, particularly in regards to African Americans, uh, that, that critique is right. Been that the MLB has tried to you know import its diversity through the Caribbean right and Latin America, and um, I mean that fact that you know twenty seven percent you know of of MLB of Ball players, right, are from Latin America, predominantly again the right. uh, Caribbean uh, and Venezuela. Um, so, I mean, just thoughts on that. I mean, we're we're getting towards uh, probably the limit of our time. I don't want to keep okay. you too long, but um, you know, let's talk about the that issue, the issue of right. the increasing presence of Latinos and the, you know the the efforts, right? It's not like this is done just accidental, right? No. Yeah. So, can you tell us what has the MLB done, right, yeah. to increase, right, the representation of right. uh, Latin and Latino American ballplayers.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's all in the way that they recruit, because they, every one of the 30 teams now has what they refer to in the Dominican Republic as an academia, which is a baseball academy, where they get young men. I mean, and it's, it's a bit better regulated now than it once was, because the very first academias, which, and I, and I believe it was your Dodgers that had the first like sort of established type of academia in the 70s. And then it, it sort of mushroomed from there because teams realized that this was a, a way to get a lot of cheap labor quickly. And so, you know, there's a very sophisticated recruitment system, but when it was less regulated than it is now, they would get boys that were very young. Like even now, like sort of the the unspoken word is if you don't have a team it's really heavily scouting you and interested in you by the time you're 16 you're done because there's always going to be somebody coming behind you and you know the, the sort of the labor pool is limitless and it's just those- like
2: shocking right i mean not to yeah. up because like in in america right for right. Or in the u.s right. right you you have up until your college years to prove exactly. your merit, right i mean yes. it's just and to, to think that at again with the with the controversy that happened over bursar tickets and all that stuff i mean a kid yeah. can be very Promising. and if they find out you know that he's not 15 or 16 and he's 17 or 18 they'll mm-hmm. just drop him yes i, I mean it's like insane or I mean, 18
1: is not that old i mean we're talking like a year to two years which is what i think just is the most appalling thing i couldn't agree more and you know and so this like and i you know another sort of personal one of the great things about this kind of research is it, there were a lot of people who were able to share personal narratives with me that helped to inform this and in a Friend of mine who's Dominican, whose family they're from the Siwa region in the Dominican Republic, and then they settled in Lawrence, Massachusetts, which has a very large Dominican population. And her nephew, like he had posters of La Santa Trinidad, as I call them, Papi Ortiz and um, and um, Pedro Martinez and 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 Manny Ramirez on his walls. And in high school, he was like, I I want to go back to the Dominican. He and his mother actually were having arguments about this because he wanted to go back to the Dominican Republic because he really wanted to play baseball and be recruited, but his feeling was that if he stayed in his underfunded urban school district, which had like a a very high um, population of students of color, he wouldn't be scouted. Whereas if he went back to the Dominican Republic, he would have a much better chance of being scouted, which numerically is probably true. I mean, his mother absolutely denied that and, 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 and put the brakes on it because she said, you know, if you don't make it because she's like i lived in in because he came to the us as a child she's like look i lived in the dominican republic long, longer than you did and i've seen what happens to the many men who don't make it and then they've dropped out of school they have like limited to zero employment prospects and there's a high poverty rate for the dominican republic to begin with so she's like that could destroy your life if you go there you drop out of school and you know maybe you're going to be the one in you know a million or whatever who make it but if you're not your life is never the same again. And you've made irre- you've done sort of irrevocable damage to your life trajectory. And I think like, I'll just end this part of the conversation with this. Like scouts are great because they're not politically correct in any way, shape or form. And they, when scouts were scouting Manning Ramirez back in the late eighties, early nineties, a, a scout was interviewed and he said, you know, we're only going to Washington Heights, which is, you know, a, a high Dominican populated neighborhood and considered to be dangerous by like a middle class white guy. He's like, I. the only reason we're going there is because he's an all city athlete and he's supposedly that good. But honestly, most scouts would rather go to the Dominican Republic because for what we pay one, you know, one U.S. prospect or even a, one Puerto Rican prospect, which is why there's sometimes the, the baseball recruitment in Puerto Rico has gone down because they're part of the U.S. draft now. But the scouts for what we pay one U.S. player, we can get at least ten Dominicans. Why would we not do that? It's just economically makes more sense.
2: Yeah, it's just, um, it's, you know, it's hard to hear that. It's hard to read it, right? Absolutely. Um, You know, particularly about a sport that you love, and <laughs> you know, baseball is not unique in in its you know approach. As you know, it's it's a it's a, you know, it's, a it's a it's a brand, right? It's a brand Absolutely. that represents a bunch of corporate interest, right? Each baseball team, right, right, is run by a multi, multi-millionaire, some several billionaires, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a business, and I think we get that, but it's, Guy, just to to, to learn and to read how exploitive it is, um, is just quite shocking, you know, um, yeah. and disturbing. And that's not to say that you cover how MLB is being pushed to do better, right? So right. The system, the academia system that that exists now, isn't the one that existed in the you know 80s or so. But right. I mean, still, it's it's yeah. still the case that mm-hmm. they are they are banking and profiting off the fact that they've created essentially a pipeline, and they know mm-hmm. that they can that they can play off the the dreams right of you know poor folk from the third world. I mean, not third world, but the, you know the global south, if you will, right? right? Um, and and think like this is their shot. Right, this is their shot, and there's there are a dime a dozen down there. So yeah, like you said, it's a lot easier to invest in the development of talent there uh, than it is to go out, you know, scouting, traveling the country, going into so-called <laughs> bad neighborhoods, or scary neighborhoods in the U.S. Because um, it's not just those aspects, but it's in the end, it's it's what are they going to pay them in that contract? Right, right. And what are they going to get the return on investment? Right, and yeah, and that's just going to be the the numbers are much more favorable for them. Uh, doing that in the Dominican Republic um, than it is in in the U.S.
1: Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, the Dominican Republic economically becomes kind of dependent because they do get so much money from this, so they're not as incentivized to do as much to curtail this as maybe
2: they could. Mm Gotcha. Gotcha. And uh, and you talk and and so we, we don't have to leave it on that. But you 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 go in through the book and you explain what MLB is doing and how, how they're being pushed to that, and also their their you know urban um, you know initiatives with uh, Black folk and African Americans mm-hmm. and what they're trying to do there. You kind of put these two things together, right? Where you're you're comparing, right, in in yeah. that sense of like corporate mm-hmm. responsibility, um right. uh, et cetera, that kind of frame. And and that that is a fascinating discussion. So I won't give it all away, but just to let our listeners know there's a lot more there and, and it doesn't necessarily end on that note, but it's important to pull out the, you know, that note of, of kind of, again, that imperialist, uh, you know, exploitation yes. that has always been a part, you know, of uh, recruiting Latin American, you know, ballplayers. Mm-hmm. Um, it still exists uh, to this day, you know, and it, yeah. it, it makes it, you know, a, a very uneven, of course, you know, process and, and divergent process for, um, you know, those that it works out for and those that it doesn't. right? Yeah. Uh, Well, I've so much enjoyed our conversation. I I mean, one thing I wanted to bring up before we left real quick is is just if you could comment to the aspect of, you know, the changing audience of, um, you know, of Major League Baseball. Uh, One thing that made this most clear to me, because one thing is when you're sitting behind a television, you can't quite see the fans as well. Mm -hmm. You see them full. But going to a game, and particularly for me in my home stadium, you know, Dodger Stadium, uh, I'm just heartbroken. I used to only live just like four eight miles away from it throughout graduate school. It was the closest I ever got to Dodger Stadium. and uh, just loved it. I drove by or rode by Dodger Stadium almost every day. But, I mean, one thing that shocked me when, um, you know, as an adult, when I started taking my kids to baseball games is that the audience is predominantly, easily, far and above Latino than it is, or multiracial than it is mm-hmm. anything else, right? And when I grew up going to those games, mm-hmm. I mean, my parents took me to my first Dodger game when I was like six months old. Of course, I don't remember that, but I think I remember the first one, I was like six or seven. I mean, it was almost all white people, right? right. And, and the Dodgers have their own history, you know, with that and Dodger, building a Dodger Stadium and all that stuff. But yes, that Chavez, Ravine. Been- yes. Chavez Ravine, that's actually the shirt I'm wearing. Actually, the shirt <laughs> I'm wearing, it has yeah. the Dodger logo with the ball going through the phrase in Dodger script, uh, the, the name Chavez Ravine, right? Wow,
1: so, that's perfect.
2: Yeah, I get a lot of comments uh, or, or funny looks about this shirt outside of LA. LA, everybody gets it, but um, right, but you that's know, awesome. where I am now, yeah. So I mean, just that aspect. I mean, so to me, that was just so striking. Um, as as I started seeing that over and over again, going to games and taking my kids to the game, like thinking, like, wow, they are they are consuming the sport the way I was reading it in a completely different way, in a completely different experience, mm-hmm. being surrounded by people that look like them. And, and this is in L.A., so I get this. I don't overblow it, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in Cincinnati, that's probably not the case, right? <laughs> you know, in other places. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, the, the the audience itself is diversifying. So, I mm-hmm. mean, your thoughts on that, maybe?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think like you make a good point. It also depends on the demographics of the city you're in because there's more Latinos living in L.A., period. So one would expect to see more in a Dodger game. I, it's interesting that you bring this up. I haven't been... Because in Chicago, it's a similar thing. You see a very diverse group. I was The most recent game I've been to was a Sox game not too, too long ago. And you do see, you do see like, yes, all of like a little bit of in in Chicago, I would say you see a little bit of everything. It's even more like I I would say it's even more diverse than it being like more predominantly Latinos than other folks of color, But you still at least sort of anecdotally, I would say, because I haven't looked at attendance data, but you still don't see a super high amount of is black. Fans in attendance, which and for mm-hmm. Chicago, for the White Sox, that's in a very, it's near a very African American community, and in fact, right. if anything, now it's gentrifying. So I bet, like, I mean, it's been a while since I've been to Sox Park, but I think if, I bet if I went there now, um it would be different. It would be a whole different thing. Like, I can remember when the Sox won the World Series in two thousand five. This is the White Sox. Let me make sure I, because when I say the Sox, people get confused here in the East Coast. um And when they won, I think it was Joe Garagiola was the announcer when when like they were about to win the game. And he said, you know, what does this mean for Chicagoans in Bridgeport who are in this, which is the neighborhood that that the Park is in, who Italian Americans, Polish Americans, Chinese Americans and and like that area now is like super latino there's a lot more of of an african-american population there's an asian population that's much more diverse because it's adjacent to chinatown and so but his press release when he described the Sox fan base sounded like it came from about 1950 i was like i can't even so i mean so i think what what we're we're not seeing mlb's press coverage necessarily catching up with trends in fan in um sort of fandom but i also would say Their their initiatives that and I'm not sure how successful they are but every team has Hispanic Heritage Month events and like I've been to to Sox Park on Latino Night although I will say I thought it would be more interesting than it was like I was like this is it like they played a few songs like I I was like come on you can do more which again it just felt like a very superficial type of attempt to play to and attract more Latino fans I was like no you could do a lot more than this and, and call this Latino Night but all right but yeah so.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I get the sense that it's, it is very much regional um, in that way. I mean, I, I do remember like going to. It wasn't necessarily. It must have been during his. It, no, it wasn't during Hispanic Heritage Month because so that's too late in the season. It was during the summer, and they were like honoring Fernando Valenzuela, and they had like a mariachi band at a. At, at, that's awesome. At, 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 <laughs> uh, oh, it was phenomenal. I'll tell you what. They they had them playing like thirty minutes before the game, and uh, that's great. It, you know, but even then, it's like like the Dodgers for a while. They've been going that direction. I mean, every mm-hmm. night's Latino night and stink in Stinking LA, you know. So it's 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 very <laughs> right
0: much regional in that
2: way. I mean, it's like yeah. you go and you get your helmet full of nachos or your micheladas mm-hmm. or whatever, right? It's just like everybody you're you're around is Latino. There's Mexican flags everywhere. So, anyways, it's it's just right. it's, it's a very Mexican sense. I'll say that right of yeah. Latino of course, yeah. in LA. Um, there's a large you know Salvi population there, Salvadoran population. Yes, absolutely. But Mexicans you know predominate you know that yeah. that market that that city but um anyways yeah it's but you're right um you know that the absence of you know a black of an african-american audience um i I see that as well um and and it's quite frankly it's 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 heartbreaking um again right um it's, it's a real missed opportunity Especially
1: um, because baseball, MLB, tries to market itself as like this great force in desegregation
2: with the yeah. Jackie oh, Robinson
1: yeah. case and everything, but but that isn't really playing out
2: today at all. Right. Well, even recently there is the the uh, social media campaign, the tip the tip your cap campaign, right? To, right. To awareness to I think it was the hundred year anniversary of the, yes. the Negro, mm-hmm. right? And I, I the same thing I felt that like they could have just done a lot more. Like I mean, again, right. baseball's not on right now, so I'm going to give them a little break, but. Like it was, it was a, a, you know, it was a different Twitter handle. It was a different Mm -hmm. group that started that campaign. Like they
1: could do better. They could just do better.
2: Done way better, you know, um, particularly since they, you know, they they try to profit so much. You're you're right off that, off of Jackie Robinson, off his number, his name and Mm -hmm. uh, and things of that sort. There's a lot more baseball can do. So, yeah. Well, wow. I've just completely had so much fun um, in this conversation. And uh, and thank you, thank you for writing the book, thank you for coming on the channel, and um, you know, uh, in giving me the opportunity to talk about baseball. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you, Same here. This has just been a fun conversation. This has just been amazing. Oh. Thank you.
2: Well, I appreciate that. Well, we'll we'll definitely look forward, and we'll put a link to uh, the book in in our uh, in our post and everything. So Excellent. definitely, encourage thank you. Our- our audience baseball fans uh or not to, to check this out and you you also i will mention you you do a great job of i think also covering um in several parts the you know the, the literature on baseball uh in uh, academia and in other ways too so there's a lot you know to get out of your book there too it can be used as a even as a sort of roadmap to, to learn a lot more you know and, and learn more about the literature um even you know just beyond how we engage with it so so again thank you again thank you